Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teams from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And here we go. And welcome to episode number four of the Principles of Performance podcast. My name is Eric Degatti, along with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Michael Perry. Michael, welcome. Hello, hello. How's everybody doing today? And it's it's, it's great. And it's going to get a little confusing here at some point because we have two Michaels on here. So I'm going to I'm going to take care of the introduction of this guy before we bring him in here. Um, he get buckle up because it's going to be a long one. You ready? So he graduated with uh, cum laude out uh, honors from William Patterson University. And if you're not familiar with that, it's a prestigious uh, academic institution here in Wayne, New Jersey that that I also attended. Um, he had a uh, graduated with his bachelor of science from there, and he's sole recipient of the Exercise Physiology Honors Award. Uh, he's also graduated summa cum laude honors from New York University with his clinical doctorate in physical therapy. Uh, as a DPT student, he was awarded the APTA Leadership Conference Award, the New York APTA Student Participation Award, and the Distinguished Samuel Eshburn Service Award for Superlative and Extraordinary Service and Leadership by the Dean. He served as a physical therapy resident mentor in a post-professional orthopedic physical therapy residence program, a master clinician, and a guest lecturer in a DPT program since 2007. In 2022, he graduated from Rutgers University, another prestigious New Jersey university, uh, with a doctor philosophy degree in health sciences and inducted into the Golden Key International Honor Society. As a PhD student, he was awarded the W. Paul Stillman Endowed Scholarship Award, a pre-doctoral fellowship, and the Ellen Ross Memorial Scholarship Award. He practices as a physical therapist from 2005 to 2018, mostly in an academic medical center as a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist and certified as an orthopedic manual therapist. Uh, his institution awarded him an, an advanced skills award, research awards, and two internal pilot research grants. He continues to work in the rehab department of the Academical Medical Center, but as an administrator, now he's managing performance and outcome measurement and data analysis. He also chairs the Quality Improvement Program and serves on the National Quality Subcommittee. Uh, he's held uh, faculty positions at a university and a medical school and has lectured nationally. He won the Clinical Educator of the Year Award from the New England Consortium. New England, there you go, Mike. New England Consortium of Academic Coordinators of Clinical Education. And since 2020, has published two peer-reviewed uh, journal articles and his dissertation, The Effect of Lumbar Thrust Joint Manipulation on Hip and Knee Muscle Strength in Patients with Patellofemoral Pain Syndrome. That's it? But is that's it. But you're ready for his biggest honor? He's my younger brother, Dr. Uh, Michael. There it is. You should have just started with that. Yeah. Dr. Michael Degatti, welcome to the show. Yeah, Eric, I, I think you're a little remiss. You failed to mention that I did take second in the Blue Thunder uh, in, I believe, 1997 as a bodybuilder. Yes. Uh, so that was one of my most distinguished moments. Yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> We'll, we'll put that we'll, we'll shine that yeah. trophy up next to the rest of them yeah. so so um the reason why we got a guy with with all these accolades and and um not only to make my mom happy that that we're having him as our first guest on the show but um as my father would say he's got more degrees than a thermometer um so we're going to talk about uh something that that kind of is a, a almost a dividing force in our industry uh mr perry and that we have one side where we have when we go out and teach our workshops, right? We have the one side of the people that if we say anything, if they say, well, where's your data? Where's your research? You know, they are all over us. And then we have the other side of the room that like could care less. Like they just want to know, is this good for me? Like, does this work or deadlifts good, right? So, 
somewhere in the middle, we have to figure out as, as fitness professionals and then working together with rehab professionals and physical therapists and so forth, like where does research fit in? So why not get a guy that I know pretty well who knows research really well and kind of find out about like, how does research get done? Like you just finished it. We were just at it um, where you got uh, your PhD, Mike, and, and you just finished research. Like walk us through the process as, as, you know, trainer guys, like walk us through the process, how the research gets done to the point where we actually see that little, you know, abstract pop up in our social media feed or uh, on Google. Sure. Yeah. So it ain't easy. Uh, I'll tell you that much. So uh, it's a long, it's a long process. And um, so, I mean, research really starts with a question. You got to have a, a question. And if your research is going to be any good, it's got to be a good question. So you have to really have studied something already to understand what's been published so that you can formulate a question that's going to add to the fund of literature. Something that builds on what we already know, but at the same time advances our knowledge. And then once you have the question, you have to start to think about, well, what is the best way for me to answer that question? And that comes to a matter of design, designing a research trial. So I'll fast forward through some of those elements. Maybe we'll talk about it later. Then uh, once you do that, you need to find a place to do it. And that's not always easy. Uh, and that's a matter of recruiting people uh, into your study. And anywhere you do that, there's going to be some oversight. Uh, very, uh, you know, very appropriately, there's human subjects research oversight. And that usually comes in the form of an institutional review board. So once you've come up with this plan to answer your question, you have to submit a protocol which is a very detailed explanation of what you want to do, how you're going to do it, whom you're going to do it on, when you're going to do it. And that has to get approved. Uh, and depending on you know, the type of research, the, the people approving it may change. So there's sort of lower level research, higher level research. And uh, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of, a, you know, what some consider administrivia doing that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, boxes to tick. Uh, really, you know, well-intentioned because there was a time when people's rights, human rights were violated in the name of research. So uh, as a means of protecting against that, you know, there's a lot of fail safes to make sure that you're gonna be conducting your research with, uh, you know, highest ethical principles and, and not being coercive in any way, shape or form. And so getting through that could take quite a while. And then, uh, then you actually have to do it, which is you have to find people that are one appropriate for study, meaning they, they meet the criteria and uh, are willing to do it. And that could take a very long time. Uh, recruitment uh, is notoriously difficult. Uh, like my study, I had 42 patients and I, you know, I work in an, in a very large high volume setting and it took uh, years to get the sample size that I did, which for you know, clinical trials is not a massive size. They had 42 subjects. And uh, so you have years of data collection uh, ahead of you. And then once you do that, uh, you have to analyze the data. And then unless you write it up and submit it for publication, no one will know about it. So most people see the end product, which is a published peer-reviewed journal article. And so that's, that's probably about as brief as I can make it, but I'm happy to answer more detailed questions about any parts of that process. Well, I have tons of questions, but, uh, but I'm going to defer to you, Mr. Perry, to, to kind of kick things off while I kind of gather my thoughts of, of which direction we go first. So let me ask you this, Mike. So in the world of fitness, a lot of people, their thing is they just drop PubMed and PubMed article one after another to try to prove their, prove their point. And, sure. you know, it, and I get it and I understand the purpose of that. But, you know, one of the things, one of the questions that I have about research is we, we know that a lot of this stuff is contextual, right? Context is everything given the, the, the scenario and how you guys actually do your research and data. But is the goal of research to try to 
prove that you're right? Or is the goal of research and what you do, is it to identify certain trends to allow clinicians, coaches, trainers to make better decisions moving forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question with a lot of questions subsumed on it. And, and so, I mean, as to what motivates a researcher, that's, that's probably an endeavor of psychology, uh, but re research is a broad term and there's many types of research, which are better at worse or answering different types of questions. So for instance, uh, you know, they're the most, probably the most basic way of uh, categorizing research is sort of like experimental, non-experimental. And, uh, and if you look at like experimental type research, observational, that, that may mean uh, just doing uh, a study where you're really just watching people because you're trying to explore a phenomenon. So in that case, you may not have uh, many specific questions you're looking to answer but you're trying to just understand something about the world or people in the world better. And so that's a, that's a broader thing. Whereas, you know, to the other side of the spectrum, when you're doing clinical trials or, you know, applied research, you're, you're trying to answer often a very practical question about how to better manage patients or, you know, if it's, it's fitness or exercise related, how to, uh, how to you know maximize benefit perhaps uh, in a very specific population type. So, uh, in the, in the key really is that not, and this this is probably the uh, I could say this over and over again in different uh, different contexts, but the key is that one's not good or bad, right? You know, uh, the researcher has different tools, which are these designs or trial uh, different types of trials or studies, and and, you, and just like you said, Eric and, 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 and Mike, like, it's not just, well, is that exercise good or bad? Uh, the same thing with the trial design. It's neither good nor bad. It's, it depends on, well, what are you trying to figure out? What's your question? So, uh, so there's, a, there's a, you know, a, a, a continuum of different types of inquiry. Well, and, and that's kind of where I'm getting stuck right out of the gate is if it's starting with a question and you have a population that's doing the research that may or may not, and, and you may, you may tell me different, but from what little bit I've been exposed to it, a lot of times that the people, at least when, when I was in school that were, were looking to do that research, didn't have a lot of foundation outside of a lab to actually see real life situations, to know what question to even start with, meaning that they're doing these hypotheticals, not seeing it in a real live weight room or, or field or that type of thing to, to know even where to start that question. Because I know I have questions that pop up every single day that I'd like to have answered um, based on what I'm seeing here, but I don't have the, the background to go and do that research. And on the flip side, you know, you don't have the people who are doing the research, don't have the, the real life hands-on experience that, that we're having here. So is the, the flaw, the initial flaw could be is that they don't even have the right question to answer because they're not seeing it happen every day. Yeah, Eric, that's a, it's a great point. And it's not, it's not a point that goes unnoticed. Uh, the, cha the challenge is, you know, when you invest your time and interest and resources in becoming a practitioner, you usually don't have much time, resources and interest in doing research i mean because that's a very often a very different path different training different education and so you end up in that situation where you you have practitioners or clinicians and you have researchers and 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 that's exactly the type of issues that arise in those cases where you know you researchers who don't really understand practice uh and and practitioners who don't understand research now i i'd like to think that i my, my background lends itself to something a little better, uh, but not everyone wants to go to school until they're 44 years old. Because uh, I went to school, you know, became a clinician, practiced as a clinician for, you know, over 15 years, and then, you know, went and got the training as research. So I think that does allow someone like me to, to be able to come up with questions that are more relevant uh, to the practice at hand. 
but that's the challenge, you know, not everyone is into that. Um, and so, uh, you know, if there was a takeaway, it would be helpful that researchers team up with clinicians and vice versa so that, you know, you can get the right people answering meaningful questions, you know, asking meaningful questions, the right people designing trials appropriately to answer them. So, and then my next thing is, okay, uh, every time I look at a, a piece of research and, and um, try to figure out like, okay, how, how is this applicable? How can I actually go and use this tomorrow is uh, something you brought up is the, the challenge of finding subjects and then trying to find out, do those subjects match who my subjects are that I'm working with every day? So um, whether it's, you know, it's the research and exercise science, a lot of times it's done with college kids, right? And so if I'm working with, you know, Mike works in an adult fitness population, right? Mike, uh, Perry, how many of your 45 to, to, to 60 year olds in your adult group fitness match the client profile that's in the average, you know, 18 to 21 year old in a college setting? Yeah. And it, it just doesn't happen. And, and that's, I guess that was actually, it's funny you said that because that was one of the things that I was thinking of, because when we look at, um, I, was, I was speaking to another coach who does research on the West coast and he works with elite athletes. And he was saying that a lot of the research, um, you know, on elite athletes or on elite athletes on purpose, because um, the information that they're going to get from those research studies are a little bit more granular and it's uh, more easily you're more easily able to identify trends because you already have an individual that has sort of this, this really, really good foundation of training and this high level of training. Whereas if you're working to identify trends from a performance standpoint with a, you know, a 25 year old individual that's never done any type of exercise in their life, it's not going to be a good study. So um, I, I think for me, it's just really understanding, you know, sort of stepping back and saying, well, again, who are they doing this research on? And, and uh, how can we take that research and apply it? Or, or can we not even apply it? Because it does, it's not even applicable based off of the population that we work with. And I think that's one of the biggest questions most personal trainers, fitness individuals, strength coaches, I think that's one of the biggest issues uh, that they have because I think a lot of times they don't think about that. They just think about, well, this research study says X, but then when you actually dig into it and listen, I'm going to admit it fully. I don't know how to read the research. Um, so I don't, that's why I'm not sharing PubMed articles on, you know, every time I post something, because what I don't want to do is say, Hey, look at, this is what this says, but come to find out, you know, the, the individuals in which the research were done don't even match the profile of the people that I'm working with on a day-to-day -day basis. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's a great point. And that, that is um, really an important consideration when you're thinking about the application of research, but I think what might be helpful is also to understand sort of the practical challenges of doing research. And I, I know this as a consumer of research from days of being a trainer, uh, to my exercise science time, even as a practicing therapist, is you get frustrated by sort of the lack of research or research that doesn't seem relevant. But when you try to do research, uh, you start to understand why there's so many gaps in literature. And, you know, to get down to brass tacks, the reality is most of the research that's going to interest any of us in this conversation is not funded, meaning you don't get paid to do it. And I didn't know this starting my training as a researcher, uh, but I learned it uh, eventually is that, you know, there's funded research, and there's not funded research. In terms of funded research, there's, re there's industry-sponsored research, that's pharmaceuticals, you know, uh, medical devices. A lot of that's not relevant for our interests. And then funded, the, the other source of funding is government funding. And, you know, they're not going to, you're probably not going to have a, a well-funded trial to look at what hypertrophies 44-year-olds, you know, for aesthetic gain, right? Like that's that's not probably the best use of taxpayer funds. Um, says who? So, <laughs> yeah, says yeah. who? Not these 40-year-olds, 40, 40 <laughs> something. Yeah. So, and, and the thing is, it, it's very difficult uh, to get funding. I mean, 
the people who apply for government funding are like the smartest people there is in science. And the funding line is about 15%, meaning, you know, uh, 85% of people are going to get denied. And so you're left to doing this on your own. And so people are doing it in addition to their job. Like when I was doing research, I was being, I was a full-time practitioner at the PT and I, and, and most of this research is being done by people who are just doing it because they, they, they're generally, genuinely interested in contributing um, to knowledge. So they can't necessarily, they can't pay participants uh, to enroll in the trials. They, you know, it's again, it has to be in the goodwill of them and uh, they have to have access, which is, which is difficult. Uh, and they have to have time. It's very, very time consuming. Uh, to, to do research. So it's sort of easy to say, well, why didn't you do a study with all you know people like this? And it's like, well, dude, I got a job, <laughs> you know, like uh, it, it, it's difficult. So it, it's a point, it's a good point, uh, but it's not a, it's not as easy to resolve as it may seem. And that's why when we see people who are genuine like that, like, um, Mike, I don't know if you remember, we went to an idea conference a bunch of years ago, we got Dr. Len Kravitz's ear. And, you know, we talked to him after a conference for probably a good hour and, and never found a more kind soul who was just genuinely um, looking to pay it forward. And, you know, not doing it for for social media likes or any of that stuff and was truly, truly passionate, like you're talking about. Now, you know, we talk about in our course, one of the challenges that people that trainers and strength coaching need to understand is like, like, you know, Mike and I started off early on together as, as trainers and coaches. And like, we were, you know, we were doing a lot of the continuing education and for the, the other trainers in the gym that we worked at, because while they were out, you know, partying or doing whatever else, Mike and I were the, the geeks reading Zatsky Orsky and, and, and SIF books. Right. So the problem was, is that as cool as that information was, is that, you know, looking back it, you know, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the foundation and the pillars that we always lean on uh, for a lot of our strength and conditioning stuff. But as we talk about in the course that we have to realize that that research was done in old Eastern Bloc countries where like you could take your, your subjects and stick them in a cabin all day, you know, pull them out when you want them to train, tell them what to do, feed them what you wanted to feed them, sneak in some steroids here and there. And you really had about as much of a controlled study as you could have. Well, you know, the clients we work with, even the professional athletes, you know, they, we can't stuff them in a cabin, like they have lives, they have things they have to deal with. So you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt when you look at all those variables that that were part of that that research. So also, there's, I would imagine there's a certain amount of confirmation bias that if you're starting with a question, like if I'm biased to say, I, you know, like you did yours on, on spinal manipulation, if you go on social media, you're going to find half the, the people say, you know, it's nonsense. And then half the people say it's going to cure cancer. Right. And then there's, there's somewhere in between. So you'd have to, you'd probably, I would imagine have to really fight against that starting your question with a, with a bias in mind. Right. Well, I, I don't, honestly, I don't think that's as big a problem as it may appear. And, I, and I'll, and this is why I think that is the case. So one of the good things about science is there's sort of a lot of like checks and balances to make sure the integrity of science itself is maintained. So if I am just setting out to prove a point, you know, let's say, because I think manipulation is great. Right. And I, and I want to make a study to prove that uh, it's for, for one, when I design the protocol, the protocol has got to be approved and and one, aside from you know ensuring its safety and its you know adhering to ethical principles and conduct, uh, some institutions like mine they also have uh, a scientific review committee to make sure that the design is sensible and uh, and does its best to mitigate biases of the researcher. And then, uh, if you expect to get it published you're gonna to have to demonstrate that you took the appropriate measures to do your best to minimize bias. And I say minimize because everything has bias. Uh, and, and bias, I, I should probably qualify what I mean by that and I will probably in, in a minute, but um, 
to get, and then, you know, and then once you get it published, again, it's peer reviewed. So I think it would be difficult to sort of sneak that through by way of, especially if you're doing it by shoddy design. I mean, if you're, if you're literally like cooking the books, meaning like you're taking falsified data and misrepresenting it uh, to prove your point, you could get in trouble. I mean, that's, that, that is, a, it's a violation uh, of probably a lot of things that would get you in a lot of trouble is, is you know, scientific misconduct. So uh, I, I don't, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. And, you know, and the thing is, the other reality is nobody's going to invest the time to do a research project unless they have some interest in it. Like I picked a topic that I thought was cool and I was willing to spend, you know, 10 years studying it and uh, you kind of have to. So just because somebody has great interest and, and may have certain beliefs about uh, what they're studying doesn't necessarily mean they're not studying it in an objective, systematic way. And that really could be, you could really judge that from the methodology used. So if you know how to scrutinize a study, you know, that could become apparent. Well, that, so, that's yeah. a, a very comforting point, obviously, in yeah. this day and age, we won't get down the rabbit hole of how people, you know, currently question science and have well, your science isn't my science type of thing. Right. Yeah. But, um, but that's, that's, that, that's kind of what the answer that I was hoping for is that it is objective as it is now on the utilization side. Well, there's certainly bias on that, right? You know, if you're yeah. a practitioner of a certain thing and you see a shred of evidence that backs up your point, you're going to, sure. you're going to post that thing every place that, that people can see it. Right. So, um, but there's, there's obviously there's conflicting data, right? There's conflicting sure. data with, with back pains, probably the easiest one, right? There's, yeah, there's data that, yeah. yeah, there's data that shows, you know, this methodology works and this methodology works. And then there's, there's data that shows like, if you do nothing, right, it, it works. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you can find whatever, you know, if you're the guy who wants to lay on the couch, you could pull out that data and say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm on a back pain protocol right here. As I lay here and watch Netflix. So yeah. um, that's where um, I, I think a point you just touched on is so as, as a um, practical end user, strength coach, personal trainer, even the physical therapist who's out there and who wants to kind of make sure they're as, as versed as possible on what is, what is being proven and what is being disproven. What's the easiest way to go about reading research and what are the key things we should look for? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a whole, another thing onto itself. And I, I think what emerged in sort of the history of medicine to really answer that question is what we commonly refer to as evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine. And uh, so, you know, well, like, so what is that? Um, it, it's really how do we use current best evidence to make decisions uh you know often these are clinical decisions but the same would apply in exercise and it's quite a an ingenious uh framework uh that helps you do so so you know the definition by the, the person who sort of coined the phrase uh, was a physician named Sackett and Technically, the definition is a conscientious, explicit, judicious, and reasonable use of modern evidence-based, uh, best evidence in making decisions about the care of individuals. And so one of the fundamental things, concepts of evidence-based medicine is the hierarchy of evidence, usually represented in a pyramid. And what, what that's based on uh, is, is this idea of the strength of the evidence, and that is really a function of the type of trial design. So certain designs allow us better or are better suited for, for being able to infer causality to say like, okay, this treatment uh, seemed to have a significant effect on a given group that we study. Uh, whereas other designs are sort of weaker in that 
you're you're not as justified in drawing those conclusions to to make that uh, perhaps a little clearer. So uh, one type of probably the simplest form of research is what's called a case study. You know, let's say uh, you have a, a client who's of great, you know, something's unique about that client, or maybe there's something you want to do unique with that client. And so you really record and measure uh, probably more diligently than when you would otherwise. And then you can publish that to sort of let the world know like, hey, this is some interesting person or interesting management thing. But the problem is you can't, if, if it so happens that you're looking at a treatment uh, and it sort of works, you would be very misguided to say that proves that it works because that's one person. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that can account for why that person got better. So that, that's sort of like lower, you know, lower evidence where, you know, the gold standard of establishing causality is the randomized uh, control trial. And that's, that's sort of the highest standard of asking and answering practical clinical research questions. And, you know, the, the reason why it sort of affords uh, sort of better, um, a stronger level of influence is because it controls for more things. So uh, like in the case, if someone got better, we don't, you know, if your, your client got better, maybe they, you know, who knows what they did. They started eating better. Like it could be a lot of things. And so in a clinical trial, control trial, you try to control for all those, a lot of other things so that you can be a little more sure that the thing you actually manipulated caused the change. And so in the hierarchy and what they suggest in evidence-based practice is that you should make your decisions on the best available evidence, meaning higher level evidence. And one of the things that sort of emerged uh, sort of out of the evidence-based paradigm was sort of the advent of what's called the systematic review. And that uh, is really helpful when you understand what that does. And, and it answers or solves a problem you mentioned earlier. Like you said, you can cherry, you know, cherry pick research by saying, hey, I, I think, you know, I think the Theragun is the, the best thing ever. And you do your PubMed search and you say, well, that one, you know, it concludes that, you know, inconclusive, and I don't like that one. That one says it doesn't work, don't like that. Oh, that one says it works. And that's the one I throw up on social media to support my thing. So that, that's the problem is that you can just sort of pick and choose what you want to represent. And systematic reviews are a way to guard against that. And, and I've, I've done a systematic review. They're very difficult to do, but they do a great thing. And how it works is this. You, again, you start with a question. You, you want to say, what is the uh, effectiveness of spinal manipulation for acute low back pain patients, right? And you, you, and just like you would design any other trial, you have to, you have to come up with a criteria for what types of studies you include, not include, right? Like, if, you know, uh, if, if people got massage, let's say, and they call that manipulation, you'd say that, well, that study's not appropriate. That, that's, it's not going to allow us to compare apples to apples. We really got to find studies that actually just do the kind of manipulation I'm interested in studying. Um, and all that's done ahead of time. You set a set of rules essentially to say, I'm only gonna include studies like this. I'm gonna exclude studies that are like that. And then when you search the literature, uh, the, the rules are determining what you pick and you don't pick. You know, you don't have preference anymore. And the way we sort of assure that that was done in that way is when you, when you go to publish a systematic review, you actually have to show your search strategy, exactly what terms I use to search, what database I searched in, and you have to explain how you got to the studies you ultimately included. So you may search and you find a thousand, and then you say, well, I you know, excluded the first 800 of them because they didn't even make sense or were not relevant. And, and it follows 
one of the more fundamental principles of doing good research, it's got to be replicable. So the idea is if you, Eric, or you, Mike, wanted to investigate that same question by searching the literature, if you follow my rules, you should come up with the same studies. Um, and then uh, further, what they then do is sort of, sort of at that point, we're going to assume that those studies are sufficiently similar. Right, like they had the same types of populations with the same types of interventions, and then there are things you could do statistically, which actually pools all the data together from all the studies. And the way uh, stats work is the bigger numbers you have, the bigger samples, the better conclusions you draw, the more accurate or more precise your estimations are. And so, the conclusion of systematic reviews basically summarize in an unbiased, systematic way, the results of all the available published research on a given topic. And that really uh, is what you want to look for. And, and one better um, is uh, another publication type, which is called a, a clinical practice guideline. And basically what that is, is a group of researchers uh, will, will take the systematic reviews and then say, okay, Based on this, the best evidence we got, we recommend you do A, B, or C, right? And that gives you the real practical, you know, ways of applying the literature. Like you ought to do this type of treatment, or you ought not do this type of treatment. I know that was a that was a long winded answer, but hopefully that makes some sense. Well, it, it sparked kind of a, a great connection with the next kind of question. Is we start to 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 get towards the the end of the end of the road here and where how do we make this practical for the practitioner physical therapist personal trainer strength coach and so we're collecting data every day right and so we actually have a ton of subjects that we're collecting data on but we um if you can kind of explain how we could practically without going in publishing research and going through all the trials and tribulations you went through to, to get this um, you know through all those processes but how we can actually use the data we collect right and how do we sift out the difference between correlation and causation? And so if I'm a strength coach and I have my, my uh, athlete hits a, a, a PR in their squat and it happens to happen on a rainy day, I can't go and say rainy, you know, best, it's best to squat on rainy days because that's when you're the strongest, right? So how do we start to, to as, as uh, practical users of the data that we're collecting, whether it's you know, rep sets, whether it's looking at daily readiness, whether it's looking at any of these, these factors um, that we have, how can we kind of be best in doing our own diligence to make sure that we don't get biased into certain pathways to think, okay, well, I'm going to do this method or this, this type of, of training based on uh, uh, something that I'm taking completely out of context. Okay, so I, you know, just to, to, to clarify, um, you know, in terms of using data, like if we're talking about using evidence from published research, again, just to, to, the simplest thing to do is when you search, search for systematic reviews, clinical practice guidelines, um, other kind of uh, evidence summaries, things like that, where people have taken the time to, you know, uh, to search everything that's been published on a topic and, and summarize it for you. The other good thing too, is they also, when you do a systematic review, you're also uh, judging the quality of the studies. So that's something that you really can't do effectively unless you know research well. Um, so it, that's all sort of taken care of for you. And that's exactly why all these things were created. Uh, but I think you're also asking a, another question. And what about like sort of the data you just collect in your practice, right? Like say uh, part, of your, part of your practice includes doing measures, right? Maybe you're measuring strength or flexibility, range of motion, whatever. How do I, how do I use that? And, and am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, hundred percent. So Mike's up at his facility and he starts to notice a trend that, hey, you know, I think I may have something here. Like I'm doing, um, when I do this methodology, I notice that all my, my everybody that I do it with, I notice their movement scores get better, or I notice that their recovery gets better, or I'm starting to see something here. 
how do we not get blinded by our own preferences as hands-on practitioners on what we're seeing and what we're tracking on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so that, so the short answer is uh, you, you can't really make definitive statements about these phenomenon unless you actually do research. And I'll, I'll sort of, and, and, and actually a, a way of, discussing this sort of explains, you know, actually your first question is how do you do research? Like, uh, you know, you may start with one per, like maybe you do, uh, you know, a certain mobility technique and you notice somebody squats better, right? Maybe their form gets better. You go, wow, that was cool. So, so the next sort of phase or another, actually another uh, sort of study type is called a case series. Maybe say, okay, well, that was one person. What if we do it in 10 people? Right, and so uh, now, if you do it in ten people, you still can't say that you know your mobility technique caused you know maybe these qualitative or quantitative improvements in the squat, but you're you're mounting somewhat better evidence towards that end, right? And you know, uh, so so now you have like a case series, but then. Um, you know, the question is, uh, are you going to then, you know, to really know the effect of that mobility thing, are you going to stop or standardize everything else you're doing, right? Because that's the, 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 pen, the potential, the term we use is, is confounder, right? Let's say, well, you did change your mobility technique, but did you change anything else, right? Like, uh, because you don't know then, well, maybe you change the warm up without realizing it. Maybe, uh, you know, like even time of day. I mean, there's so many things that can influence it. So to be better able to know exactly what that mobility thing does, you have to start holding more and more things constant. And that's, again, if you're taking it all the way to the extreme of a clinical trial, that's what that ultimately lands on is. How do I isolate everything I possibly can other than that? So I know it's that that's resulting in the change. So, um, you know, and that's just the reality that you really can't know or, or uh, be too confident. But I would say the more you systematically measure, meaning like you just don't measure on this guy because he seems better, but you make it a practice. I'm gonna measure everyone all the time and you make good records of that. And you do it, you know, and, and that's a big part of science too, is that like the, the bias of selecting the people on whom you measure. I mean, in research it's called selection bias, right? I'm, I'm only gonna pick people where I think will likely get the result I'm looking for. And that's, to avoid that is like, don't do that, right? Like measure everybody all the time in the same way. Interesting. So I have a, I have a quick question for you. Um, so over the last, you know, decade, one of the things that I've been seeing again and again is this idea of empir empirical evidence. Um, in, in your world, um, what is the weight of empirical evidence and where, where does that stand? And as a true researcher, what are your thoughts on that when people talk about, well, this is just empirical evidence, but they, they treat it like it's the gospel or they treat it like it carries the same weight as like a systematic clinical review. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I would first ask like, what do you mean? What does empirical mean? I mean, that's sort of like a general English language term. Uh, so in general, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, their empirical evidence is, is observation and trends based off of, off of things they've been doing. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So meaning like, you know, this is trial and error kind of, this is what I see kind of thing. Um, so, you know, the truth is, I know, Eric, you, you sort of said in the fitness industry, we have this like sort of battle of factions and it's kind of sounds like you're, you're describing something similar. I got to tell you in medicine, it's no different. <laughs> you know, there are some people that are very, very in tune with research and do their best to try to apply research and 
how they practice. And then even in healthcare, there's a lot of people say, Hey man, this is an art, you know, and I, 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 I am practicing an art and you science people can't, you know, contain, you know, the incredible nuance and sophistication of what I do in some programmatic systematic type of research study. And, um, and so again, like most things there, there's a point on both sides that reason, you know, the, the, you know, the seed of research comes from people having interesting observations, right? Like you, that that's where it all starts. And so it's not value less. Would I use that sort of quote unquote evidence uh, to make, you know, strong, bold assertions and say it's the only way to go? I mean, that that is completely unjustified. I think it has its place. Um, and, you know, on, on the research side, you know, to say like, unless there's a randomized clinical trial, then it's hocus pocus is not really a fair stance to take either because there's a big difference between uh, what they call the evidence of absence and the absence of evidence, right? Is, you know, if they haven't studied a mobility technique like you've been doing to know if it works or doesn't work, uh, we just don't know. I mean, the answer is, I don't, we don't know versus okay they've done five trials on it and in every trial the group that got it had no better effect than the group that didn't get it you know that's evidence of absence like you know evidence that there's an an effect absent so you know just because again uh, we don't have you know a systematic review concluding in favor of your treatment or strategy doesn't mean it doesn't work. Um, and just because somebody said they did it on the last 50 you know, clients they had doesn't mean it works either. So I, I think that's a, a perfect way to put a bow on things because I mean, the, the, the tagline for our course is the art and science of program design. And, it's, and it is the blend of both of those two in that, um, you know, we, we say all the time on, on the show and, and, and in the course is that here's what we really know, but there's for everything we know, there's, there's two things we probably don't know. And we don't know how all these things get together when they mix together in the soup. Um, because it's not easy to control all the variables when in the practical setting of when you're actually in the clinic or, or in the gym or, or in the, um, in the kind of real world of things. And at the same time, we wouldn't be where we are if we weren't standing on the shoulders of, of people like yourself who are going out and having the passion to do the research who are, who are allowing us to, to get a platform to do these things. So, um, Mr. Perry, any final thoughts or questions on your side before we wrap things up? No, I think, um, you know, if there's one thing that I got from this talk, well, there's several things that I got from this talk is, um, you know, there is sort of a hierarchy. And I love the fact, Mike, that you were talking about sort of, um, you know, how certain certain types of studies tend to hold a little bit more weight than others. And those are the sure. ones that you should really focus on, because it seems like um, the due diligence has been done on those specific, uh, specific types of studies, systematic reviews and, and stuff like that. So I, I think, you know, for, for the fit pros out there and for the clinicians out there, I, I think we need to, we need to understand that certain studies hold certain weight and, you know, based off of what you're telling us, um, we need to kind of look for those keywords, right? Because, um, if they really don't have sort of those boxes checked, um, maybe, things weren't done to the highest level of standards as they could have been. And which means, you know, the research maybe wasn't that accurate to begin with, et cetera. So it just goes to show there's a lot to this. I mean, I could even tell based off of the questions we were asking uh, a lot of the times, and it's the same thing. We always tell people it depends. And it seems like you could have answered everything we asked you today with it depends because there's just, it's multifactorial. Sure. Yeah. So I, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of the things you encounter are not altogether different in kind than things I do. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways that the way people think about things can go wrong, you know, whether that be in research and that we, 
we call those, there's certain biases that have been identified that can be introduced to the research and just like everyday thinking can go wrong in a lot of different ways too, you know, a lot like uh, Daniel Kahneman and his study of cognitive biases, or if you just look at sort of general reasoning fallacies. And the idea is if you're learned about these things is that hopefully uh, you could be a little more aware of your own limitations. And what I've found is certainly for myself, the more I studied a given thing, like everybody says, the, the less you really know about it. Um, and so I think just always having a balanced attitude of being somewhat skeptical, uh, but not too much so, because you know, being either dogmatic or a total skeptic are two sides of the spectrum you probably want to avoid. And so there's probably a, a level of healthy skepticism, but open-mindedness. And so that's really an attitudinal uh, issue that I think is probably the most important of everything. Love it. Awesome. Well, great stuff, brother. Love you. Thank you for being on. Mr. Perry, it's it's always fun. Thank you everyone for listening. This has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Uh, If you want to find out more about us, make sure you check us out at principlesofprogramdesign.com. You can also follow us on all our social media, as well as follow us individually. Uh, You can find me uh, at my name, at Eric Degatti on all the different feeds, and then Coach Mike Perry uh, for him as well. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.